Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you guys have your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 6. I appreciate Linda leading us and the whole team. John Duncan is gone today. Nick's gone today as well. Um, and so, so thankful for them helping us lead and everything. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you'll remember as you turn there that we're in this four-part series on prayer. And as I've said in this series, that when we stop and reflect on our culture, maybe even our community, maybe even some of our churches, the times in which we live, it's hard not to discover and recognize political and economic divides, right? We have a really important election coming up here in just a couple days. I encourage you to get out and vote. Um, But man, especially in seasons like this, it's really hard for us to not recognize that there is political economic divide. And with that comes hatred, deep hatred. There's a growing amount of substance abuse and addictions, an explosion in mental illnesses. There's so much promiscuity and crime and moral decay and corruption. Many churches, especially in our culture, have become dry, apathetic, indifferent, lukewarm. As Paul would say to Timothy, we've entered into difficult days. He told Timothy that people are lovers of themselves or would become lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having a form of godliness but denying its power. He said, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. In many ways, we are living in such days. But what if, in the midst of such a time as this, as we've seen, what if God is driving us into destitution? What if he's the one seeking to strip us bare to where we are lacking and wanting, found in extreme poverty, whether it's mentally speaking or emotionally or spiritually, so that we might recognize and acknowledge that we are nothing, we have nothing, and we can do nothing apart from him? What if he's driving us into destitution in order to produce in us desperation, desperation for him where we are willing to do anything and everything just to draw near to God? What if he's doing all this so as to create through us transformation? To transform our lives, our marriages, our families, our education system, our political system, our financial system, our communities and cultures. What if he's calling us into desperate prayer? The kind of prayer where we are so overwhelmed to the point of death, a kind of anguish in our soul, a kind of pit of destitution in which we cry out, Lord, I just want you. I just need you. What if everything we're going through is a calling from the Lord to pray? But as we've seen, it's not just that we pray, it's also how we pray. We must be, as we saw two weeks ago, direct with God. We can't beat around the bushes. We can't pretend. We can't hold back. We can't put on a mask with God. He knows us. He knows our needs. We must come before him utterly and completely exposed. 
vulnerable and open. Come just as you are. And today I want us to see that God is also calling us into a disciplined prayer life. He's calling us into desperate prayer to pray, but to pray openly to him, just as we are. But he's also calling us into a disciplined prayer life. Yesterday, we uh, went and got family pictures. This is a chaotic mess every year around this time. And if you know family pictures, it can be a nightmare, Uh, especially when it's windy and cold and chilly and things like that. And you're trying to get three kids to smile just for a moment just for a moment. We got these family pictures, and while we were there, where we were getting them at, there was all these sandburrs. You know this, what I call wicked wheat. There's all of these sandburrs. I'm talking they were everywhere. We were picking them off our pants and everything, and when the kids would lift up the bottom of their shoes, it was literally just caked in sandburrs. This is how bad it was. Well, Hannah, our two-and-a-half-year-old, at one point while we're there, about five minutes before we were to take these family pictures, a terrible timing, she fell into these field of sandburrs. And so she immediately goes to crying, and she's grabbing all sorts of things, her face or everything. And when she stands up, she's got sandburrs just on her. And so we're there, you know, we're brushing them off, we're scraping them off, we're getting her all good to go, trying to get her face not to be so blotchy right before these family pictures. And we're getting everything good, and then we notice she had one driven into the palm of her hand. And you know this feeling. You, you've been there, right, with these sandburrs. And she had this thing driven into her hand, and so I go to pull it out. And when I do, one of the little needle things on that nasty thing broke off and was left in the skin. And so a little bit of the point was still sticking out, and so I go to pull it out, but what happened? It breaks off, leaving a huge chunk of it in her skin. And of course, I didn't have the tools or the thing there to help get it out. And so I knew this was going to be a long Saturday night, right? And the worst possible timing. And so I knew when we get home that we're going to have to go through that whole process, and so she knows it's coming. So when we finally eventually get home, she's crying. She knows it's going to hurt. But we get her sitting down and everything, and so we grab her hand, and Stephanie's having to help me, and I get the pliers, and her, or the tweezers and everything, not the pliers, that's <laughs> poor choice of words. I get the tweezers, and I go to start digging that thing out, and as I'm digging that thing out, she's crying, of course, she's weeping, and she begins to squirm. She's uncomfortable because it's painful, it's unpleasant, and she begins to pull away. But thankfully, we did get it out, and everything was fine, and we moved on with the rest of the night. But that image, that image, that is about how we are when we hear the word discipline and prayer in the same sentence. Some of us internally are crying. Man, I thought we were coming to hear something else today. I didn't think we were going to hear about discipline and prayer. We're crying. We're we're squirming, a little bit uncomfortable in our seats. It's an unpleasant thought. One, because we probably know we're not disciplined, especially when it comes to prayer. And so we're pulling away internally, pulling away emotionally. Already beginning to think about the to-do list this afternoon. Already beginning to think about what I've got to do and what I don't have to do and what's upcoming. But listen to me on this. Especially in the days in which you and I live, 
We cannot afford to be undisciplined when it comes to prayer. Continuously, we are told throughout Scripture, pray constantly, pray without ceasing. Whether it's raining, whether the sun is out, whether it's hot, whether it's cold, whether even you feel like it or not, pray, pray, and pray some more. Luke chapter 18, Jesus told the disciples a parable, a story, about a widow who just kept coming and appearing before a judge every day, every day, every day. She was persistent. She was disciplined. And Jesus told them this story to show them that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And the word that Jesus used there for not losing heart literally means to lose one's motivation to accomplish some valid goal. It means to become discouraged, to lose heart, to give up. And if you were to put a positive spin on it, it means to keep on. Keep on keeping on. Continue constantly in prayer. So we're to pray every day in a spirit of prayer to keep on, to continue, which means to be successful in that, we must be disciplined in actually praying. We must be disciplined in actually praying. Because what happens when we're not? Well, a couple of things will happen. You will find yourself always talking about praying and never actually praying. You won't actually pray. You will always not feel like it. You will always find something else to do. You'll always be like Martha and find something else to do instead of sitting at the feet of Jesus. You always will. Something will always come up. You won't actually pray if you're not disciplined in it. It's like working out. I may say I want to run a marathon. Great ambition. Very exciting. But you don't just stumble into a marathon. You don't just wake up and start running. If you're ever to run a marathon successfully, I don't think I ever will because I don't have the discipline or the desire, but you have to discipline your body, your mind. You have to discipline your schedule. You have to carve out training, preparation. You have to shift things around. You have to move things around. You have to make time. You have to. It's like sports. You may say you want to win the championship. That's a great aspiration. But if you're ever to do just that, you must have discipline. You've got to discipline your body, your mind, your schedule. In April, if the championship is in January, you have to be disciplined. It's just like playing an instrument. If you wanted to be like Linda or Lisa or Suzanne, you want to play an instrument. That's a great aspiration. But they would tell you, if you're ever to do just that, you have to discipline yourself. Your body, your mind, your schedule. You don't practice, you'll never play. And if you want to have a strong communion with the Lord, if you want to abide in Him, if you want to go deeper with the Lord, get out of the shadow end, if you want to step as He would have you step, if you want to think the way he would have you think, if you want to see what he would have you see, to do what he would have you do, then you must discipline your body, your mind, your schedule, and actually pray. Now, most of us would probably say, well, time is our issue. 
If only we had enough time. It's our schedules. That's, that's the problem. Who has the time, right? Well, one person once said, though, in the end, when it's all said and done, in the end, one of the great uses of Twitter, and you could add Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Fox News to the list, will be to prove that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. It's not about time. It's about discipline. And most of us are undisciplined in prayer. You know, most phones now, they have in their apps, you can track how much time you spend with each app. If we were to gather up all of our phones in this room and count how many hours spent on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other entertainment platform, I guarantee you we'd have a lot of wasted hours in this room. Consumed with anxiety and stress about the way things are. Not actually praying to the one who is in control of all things. We have to be disciplined in prayer. It's not about time, it's about discipline. Most of us are undisciplined in prayer. It's why we will go days, weeks, months, years without actually sitting at the feet of Jesus and just praying. But listen to me on this, especially in the days in which you and I live, we cannot afford to be undisciplined when it comes to prayer. Because it's not just that you won't do it if you're undisciplined. It's also that your life will get out of alignment. You will then be inviting disaster into your relationships, your families, your finances, your workplaces, your cultures, your communities, even our churches, everything. Prayer is a constant realignment of our hearts and our minds and our souls, our very lives under the lordship and kingship of Jesus. It puts everything in its proper perspective and order and place. And we need this constant realignment every day, every hour, every minute. Why? Because as the old song goes, we prone, are prone to wander. We feel it. We know it. Our lives are prone to go everywhere. All of us are like Peter on the water. Because of the winds and the rains and everything else around us, we are prone to take our eyes and our hearts and our minds off of Jesus and to glue them onto everything else. Thereby inviting disaster into our lives to where we're sinking, wondering how can we ever get out of this mess. Prayer is constantly returning our very lives to the proper place and order under the lordship and kingship of Jesus. Think of it like this. Most of us know the story of the Apollo 13 mission many years ago. This mission was to go to the moon, just like a couple missions had before. And on their way to the moon, the ship broke. If you've seen the movie, it goes through all of this. And so it broke, and they weren't going to be able to land on the moon. Their next challenge, their main goal, just became getting home, getting back to Earth. So they're literally on their way back, And on their trip back, so much went wrong that at one point, as they were approaching the Earth's atmosphere, they recognized and realized that they needed to make a critical course correction because the angle in which they were coming back to the Earth was a bad angle. And thus, once they hit the Earth's atmosphere, they were going to bounce off and float off into space and we'd never see them again. So they needed a course correction. The problem was, is they had shut all their computers down to save power. But to correct their course, they needed to fire up those engines for about 35, 40 seconds without turning on the computers. So they needed to steer manually. 
but you're out there in space. There's no fixed points. In other words, how in the world will you know where you're going without computers? They needed a fixed point in space to stay true to the course. And then they discovered it through the window. It was their destination, Earth. That would be their fixed point. So they fired up the engine. The craft was wanting to go everywhere. Left, right, just all around. It was prone to wander. But for those long seconds, they would come back to that focus, that fixed point. And by doing that, they stayed true to the course. Constantly refixed, constantly realigned their reference point on the earth. Thereby, they avoided disaster. Prayer, in a way, is like us fixing our reference point on Jesus. It's a constant realignment. Putting ourselves and everything else in our proper place under him, fixated on him. So to speak, it is the earth in the window. And we must be disciplined in prayer because without discipline, we won't pray. And very well, we won't say fixated on Jesus and we will invite disaster into our lives. And this brings me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. Look with me there now. It starts off with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign or a symbol on your hands. And they shall be as frontlets or signs or symbols between your eyes. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house. And you shall write them on your gates. I remember I was in grade school. And I remember being in elementary grade school. And I remember in the mornings we would come in. And we would have a routine. Didn't matter if it was Monday, didn't matter if it was Wednesday, didn't matter if it was Friday. We would come in and we'd do the same routine. We'd put our stuff up, we'd sit down, and then we'd go over this just kind of checklist of things. What day of the week is it? What month? What season? What's the weather? What time is it? We'd go over this long little checklist. But at some point in this routine, we would collectively stand to our feet and we would put our hands on our hearts, and we would face the American flag. And we would proceed to give the pledge of allegiance. We would declare our allegiance, this pledge, to the American flag. Every day we did this. Every day we'd say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 
every day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, didn't matter if I was in first grade, third grade, fifth grade, every day we did this. We were disciplined in this. Didn't matter if it was raining outside. Didn't matter if it was sunny outside. Didn't matter if it was the fall or the spring or the winter. Didn't matter if it was hot or cold. It didn't even matter if we felt like it or not. We stood up and we proceeded to give our pledge of allegiance. Why? Why? So that as we went about our days, learning math and reading and as we went to play on the playground, as we went home, as we went about our days, so that we would be reminded that we belong to this country, that we live under this flag. It was daily us putting the earth in the window, refixing, realigning to that fixed point. And what would happen if we didn't? Perhaps we would never say it. Perhaps we would never remind ourselves and instead forget what country we belong to and the price that went into and still goes into purchasing that flag, that freedom. And perhaps worse, perhaps if we didn't say it, perhaps we might invite disaster into our country. Especially if a whole generation rose up, not doing it, not remembering, forgetting what country they belong to and the price that went into and continues to go into purchasing that flag and the freedom that comes with it. Every day, the pledge was a reminder, a realignment. Don't forget what country you belong to. Don't forget the price of that freedom. Don't forget who you are and where you belong. And what you and I just read in Deuteronomy are words given to the nation of Israel by Moses. And at this point in time, the Israelites are in the wilderness. In comparison to the years that they had been waiting, they are days removed from entering the promised land. And don't forget their history up to this point in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You remember Abraham, very famous character in Genesis, right? You remember Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to what? Israel. Right? And he changes his name to Israel. And Israel, Jacob, has these 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. They become a big old honking family that could trace their ancestry down to Abraham. And so among those 12, there was a guy by the name of Joseph. And Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph. Gave him a coat of many colors. Really appreciated him. Really loved him. And Joseph's brothers couldn't stand him. They hated him. So much so that they thought about killing him, but instead they ended up just beating him up, leaving him there in a hole, eating some food, and then eventually selling him off to some slaves. Joseph goes off. He's wrongfully accused and spends very many days in prison. But he continues to walk with the Lord. The Lord is constantly with him. And through the gift in which God gave him, the interpretation of dreams, Joseph is raised to power in a place called Egypt. And so there he is in power. He goes so much that he's basically on the same level as Pharaoh. He's like right there, almost as one with Pharaoh. It's a huge foreshadow to Christ and Jesus and the Father and so on. But there he is on the same level. And long story short, he makes up with those brothers 
the family moves down to Egypt because it's a really hard time and life goes really, really well for them. They live kind of happily ever after. But then time moves on. A new pharaoh comes to town, a new king, ruler, leader of Egypt comes to town, forgets Joseph, forgets all about how God used Joseph to deliver Egypt in a really difficult time, and instead turns on that big old honking family that had now grown very, very large. And then he enslaves them, begins to treat them very, very harshly. The government began to just persecute and oppress them. And during that time, a guy by the name of Moses was born. Now think about this. Moses was born at the time where the government told the Hebrew midwives, hey, if a boy comes out of the womb and he's an Israelite, kill him. That was the day and age in which Moses was born. Born into that culture, God has his hand on him, and he actually is raised in the house of Pharaoh, educated like an Egyptian. And this goes on for some time, 40 years or so, and then Moses, out of anger, commits murder. And then he goes off the grid for another 40 years. Then God shows up in this burning bush and says, man, it's finally time. It's finally time to deliver my people from the hands of Pharaoh and Moses. I'm going to use you. We know the story. Moses eventually goes, but he has to take Aaron along with him. And they go and they appear before Pharaoh and say, hey, let God's people go or else. And, and of course he doesn't. And then that produces these 10 plagues. And the final one, this is where we get the Passover, but it's the death of the firstborn. And after that 10th plague, God or Pharaoh finally says, that's it. Just get out, take whatever you want. And God, through all of that, changed the perception of the Israelites in the eyes of the Egyptians. And so the Israelites leave Egypt, after hundreds of years of slavery and oppression, they leave Egypt, but as they're leaving, they come to this Red Sea. It's a, it's a blocked road in front of them. It's a problem. And now Pharaoh has changed his mind, so the enemy now is coming behind them, and they are sandwiched between Pharaoh and his men and this Red Sea. But there the Israelites are for some time, all night, just sitting and waiting. As Moses said, just be still, he'll fight for you. And God all night caused this east wind to blow, and the sea parts, and they cross on dry ground. And then the Egyptians go in after, and of course, God causes the water to come back on them, and the Israelites watch their enemy swept away. And now they can go live happily ever after, just walk with the Lord, be faithful with the Lord. But it didn't last very long until the Israelites turned on the Lord. They create a golden calf. And as a result, as punishment, they would spend the next 40 years wandering about in a place like this. And so now here you are, and this next generation is about to go into the promised land. So close to entering a land long promised. And at this point, they know how the Lord has delivered them, how he has bought their freedom. They know that he has provided manna and quail every day, that he was faithful to them every day while in the wilderness, and how he guided them and directed them every day, night and day. So here they are in this wilderness with this history behind them, with the promised land before them, and then they're given this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This prayer has become known as the Shema. 
And the name comes from the first word in this prayer, hear. The Hebrew word is shema. It literally means to hear. But listen, it's, it's not just to hear and then go about my day. It's to hear and obey. It's to listen what I'm telling you and obey what I'm telling you. We understand this Shema word. If you were to go to your child or your grandchild or something and say, hey, you need to clean your room by 2 p.m. And you go to them at 3 p.m. to discover the room is not cleaned. What are you going to tell them? Why didn't you listen to me? But that child may very well say back to you, no, I heard you. I did listen to you. Yes, but then why didn't you clean the room? What you were meaning is Shema. To hear and obey, that's what I expected of you. To not just listen, but then to go do it. That's the same with this word Shema. Hear. Hear, Israel. Remember your past. Remember where you come from. Remember what your ancestors did. And listen to this. The Lord our God, He is one. There's not another God. There's not anybody like him. There's not multiple gods, just like all these nations around you. The Lord is one. And you shall love him. Nothing or no one else. You shall love him with all of your heart. Not part of it, but all of it. With all of your soul. Not part of it, but all of it. And with all your might, all your strength, with your very self. And this Shema prayer has turned into the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance. Every day, the Jews pray three times a day. They pray more than that, but specifically, they make sure they pray three times a day. We, we see this in the story of Daniel, right? With Daniel praying three times a day. The Jews pray three times a day, beginning, middle, end. And these prayers revolve around the Shema. The Shema is a centerpiece to their very lives. Any good little Jewish boy and girl could recite to you the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We shall love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. That is their prayer. And they are disciplined in praying the Shema. Why? The same reason we were disciplined in pledging our allegiance to the American flag. So that as they were to go about their days, going into that promised land, going to school, going to their jobs, sitting down for dinner with their family, so that they would continually remind themselves that they belong to one Lord, to one God and Father of all, who delivered them from Egypt, who set them free, and that they would live under His Lordship and His kingship, and that He and He alone would be the one that got their hearts and their minds and their souls and their strengths. And what would happen if they did not? Well, perhaps they would never say it. Perhaps then they would never remember or they would forget who they belonged to and the price that went into purchasing their freedom. Or even worse, perhaps they might then invite disaster into their lives. And if you keep reading the Old Testament, you see that eventually they do. Every day, the Shema is a reminder. It's a realignment. It's putting the earth back in its window. 
It's course correcting. Of course it must be deeper than words. It's not just hearing them. It's Shema. It's obeying them. It's living this out. But this is their prayer. And we can learn from their discipline. It has nothing to do with legalism. It's disciplining ourselves so that we might have a stronger communion with the Lord, so that we might run that marathon, so that we might go deeper with the Lord, so that we might step as He would have us step, and to think that He would have us think, to see what He would have us see, to do what He would have us do. It's simply us disciplining our body, our minds, our schedules, and actually praying. So I want to challenge you to something. Because most of us are reactive with prayer. We wait till we feel like it. We wait till our emotions are there or the, the setting is right with our time. But I want to challenge you something. And I want you to, to diligently do this at least till Christmas and watch what God does. Referred, I refer to it as the three by five. Three times a day, five minutes each time. Beginning, middle, end. And if you can do it, I encourage you to do it that first five minutes before your feet even touch the ground. Before you look at anything, before you touch anything, before you go anywhere, before you start anything, before your feet touch the ground, for that first five minutes, realign your heart, your mind, your life under the lordship of God. Under the kingship of Jesus. Three times a day, five minutes of Prayer, sitting in the presence of God, but at the heart of it, this Shema, in light of Jesus. And do this on through Christmas. Now, some of you are saying, man, I can't do it three times a day. That's too much. That's too much. Then I, I'll make it a little easier to at least do one by five. At least do one time each day, five minutes. For some of us, you say, well, that's an easy, that's a breeze. I've been doing that for years. But for some of us, that is going to be extremely, extremely hard. Because you're not disciplined in prayer. At least one time for five minutes. At least do it till Christmas and watch how the Lord begins to move and to change and to transform. Do this as an individual. Do it as a married couple. Do it as a family. Teach your kids and grandkids to do this. You say, well, Jonathan, why in the world does this even matter? Because the Israelites were told... This is the Shema, this is the prayer, but they were to teach the next generations so that they too would live under this allegiance, so that they too would not forget. But they were also to put it as a sign or a symbol on their hands and on their eyes. And this was strategic, it was intentional, symbolic. Why? Well, from your eyes, you see the world. Your eyes are almost symbolic with your perception and your perspective, your viewpoint, your vision, your discernment, the way you see everything, the way you see everyone. And I'm telling you, you will look at our world and see it not the way God sees it if you're not disciplined in prayer. And from your hands comes action, work, obedience. In other words, the Shema was to guide their mind, their sight, their vision, their perception, their perspective. The Shema was also to guide their action, their obedience. And it was to be everywhere. 
Wherever they went, as they came home, they were to see it. It was to impact what they saw, how they acted, how they reacted. And so our challenge today is to be disciplined in prayer. Fine, carve out those three times. Do more, but at least do three times. At the very, very least, at least do one time. And be disciplined in it. Carve out that time. Be disciplined in your schedule. Tell your minutes where to go. Let the Shema guide your mind, your sight, your vision, your perception, your perspective. Let it guide your action, your obedience. Understand that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So let this prayer be the realignment of our lives. Let it be the reminder that there's one Lord, one God, and that we are under his lordship and kingship, and that we should love him with everything. Let us not forget every day that we belong to a king who rules a kingdom not of this world. And let us not forget the price of that freedom that you and I live in. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite the team forward as we have this time of invitation. And like I've been doing every week in this series, I'm going to challenge some of you just to even come forward and pray. doesn't mean you have to say anything. Sometimes prayer is just simply being still and knowing that He's God. Resting in silence before Him at His feet. Some of you need to be like Mary and just stop what you're doing and just come and sit at the feet of Jesus. And even as I pray, I want to challenge you to come collectively together to these steps. Just pray, just to sit. But I'm also going to challenge you in this prayer time to make that commitment to be disciplined in your prayer life. To be disciplined in it. Every day, pray constantly in a spirit of prayer with thanksgiving, rejoicing always, knowing that there's one Lord, one God, and Father of all. And that we are to love Him with everything in us. Every day we need it because we're prone to wander. So even as I pray, you come. Even as I pray, you come. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that in Christ, because of his life, his death, his work on a cross for us, that we can come boldly into your presence. That we can have communion with you. That we can walk with you again. That we can have fellowship with you again. Lord, help us every single day be realigned under your lordship and kingship. Forsaking all others and choosing you every day. Above everything, before everything. Denying self daily, picking up our crosses and following you every day, every day, every day, disciplined in it. And Lord, at first it's uncomfortable and painful because nobody likes discipline. But over time, Lord, it produces so much. So Lord, help us to be disciplined in our prayer lives. If we're not, we'll never pray. Or worse, we'll invite disaster into our lives. Help us to learn from those who have gone before us, the good and the bad, and help us to pray. Teach us to pray. 
to your glory. In Christ's name I pray. And I ask that you stand with us. These steps are for open. You come even now to pray. If you need to talk to me about anything, church membership, salvation, baptism, I'm down here as well. But you come and pray.